Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the startling spiritual terrain on the other side of conventional religion, where talking to trees, writing sacred poetry, and summoning the dead may be the new normal. Welcome. This is a re-recording of the first episode of The Mystic Cave. The content hasn't changed, But two years and over a hundred episodes later, I've gotten better at this. I wanted to go back and start again, putting my better foot forward, at least for this episode. So, here it is. I was raised in the church. For the most part, I loved the church. I loved it so much, I was ordained and served almost 40 years as a parish priest. But when I left, I knew it was for good. The church is effective for gathering like-minded people, for teaching faith and encouraging spiritual practice, for asking engaging questions about life's purpose, and for mobilizing well-meaning people to be, potentially, world-changers. At the congregational level, I did love the Church. Even its grumpy members, its small-town politics, and its resistance to change. There was something inescapably real about all that. Real people trying to find their way in a confusing world, hurting people, needing a shoulder to lean on, happy people generously sharing their gifts with one another. When I left the church, it wasn't the congregations I was thinking of. It was the weight of 2,000 years of theological dogma. It was the oppressive paternalistic power structure of Father Knows Best, even when Father turned out also to be Mother. It was the need to control the story the teachings, and the public image of Jesus, to say that we who followed him had something no one else could ever offer, a better God, a better way to heaven, a better plan for humanity. The hubris of all that was hard to bear, and even harder to defend as one of the church's official representatives. I just had to wonder what Jesus himself thought about it all. I felt a tremendous relief leaving the church, even as I struck out on an unknown path. But the thing is, I know I'm not alone. You're out there, too, doing the same thing, finding your own way, making your own discoveries. 
The thought behind this podcast is simply to share my journey with you, my stories, my observations, my thoughts. The hope is that you, in turn, will share your journey with me and with any other spiritual seekers who join us along the way. The dream is that together we will find new ways of being faithful people, of fathoming life's deepest callings and responding to the opportunities life offers us. I'm beginning this series with a manifesto of sorts. It's a piece I wrote for the Alexandra Writers' Center in 2021 for its 40th anniversary anthology. So let's begin here with a personal reflection called Burying the Dead. I knew it in my gut long before I knew it in my head. My gut spoke the language of my heart. It took a while for my head to find the words. The church was dead. I felt it whenever my clergy colleagues and I gathered for some big worship service at the cathedral. The Anglican Church has always been great at this sort of thing. We are, after all, the Church of England, and therefore the Church of the Royal Family. We know how to put on a show— Formal processions are us, as are titillating motets performed by fluty voices and stunning brocaded vestments. But you take the soul out of one of those services, and it becomes laughable, like a cruel Monty Python sketch. I would find myself squished shoulder to shoulder into a pew of clergy, watching the proceedings with an off-color commentary running in my head. Why are we all doing this? No one really wants to be here. We don't even like each other. Oh, here comes the passing of the peace. Nice smile there, phony baloney. The ushers don't even pretend they're having a good time. Hey, would a smile kill you? I didn't feel this way in my own church. I knew the people, and I liked them, most of them. We'd traveled a distance together, suffered together, laughed together. When a communicant presented themselves, palms extended to receive the sacrament, I knew what it meant to them. Consolation, absolution, sustenance. It wasn't funny. Unless someone lost their wafer into the chalice of wine, and then all hope was lost. But sometimes it broke my heart to see their own hearts open so wide. Not so much in the wider domain of churchland, however, where we seemed to have forgotten who we were and who we were called to be. As people began staying away, we needed to see it as their fault, not ours. We clung to the cross even more tightly and to all the esoteric words and strange rituals with which we safeguarded our message like a dwindling inheritance. The world's disbelief made us believe all the more fervently. We grieved the old days, when people came to church in droves, sending their children to burgeoning Sunday schools, filling the church twice each Sunday, once in the morning for matins or Holy Communion, and again in the evening for evensong. We grieved the loss of our place of honor in the world, when the House of Commons once boasted three Anglican clergy among its elected representatives, one in each party. Then, having sent our boys overseas to fight the good fight, having held the line on slipping sexual mores, we grieved that the world changed 
and we were no longer the moral authority of the new nation, where war was out and divorce was in. When the world stopped believing, and then stopped attending, and then stopped listening altogether, we soldiered on. But it was lonely work. Secretly, we looked out through our stained glass windows and saw the world not mired in its secularity, not falling into sin and degradation, but working for equitable income and affordable housing, fighting for the rights of minorities, caring for the environment, things we had forgotten to do with our hands while we were busy cultivating our voice. And it didn't escape our notice that people who'd left the church seemed to be having such a good time. They could swear if they wanted and pair off with whomever they chose, regardless of gender and without the benefit of marriage. And the best part? On a Sunday morning, they could sit in the sunshine alongside the riverbank, a latte cupped in their hands, watching the world cycle by, recreating by just sitting there. Suddenly, what we were doing, sitting in church, didn't feel so special anymore. There were other ways to meet up with like-minded people, other ways to reflect upon life, other ways to recharge the batteries for the week ahead, formulating the ideals that would benefit the world. We continued rising and falling to the rhythm of the hymns and the prayers, listening to someone at the front pull it all together for us, then trudging forward to receive a wafer and with it the reminder that we were mere supplicants in this life. But for some of us, we began hearing a voice in our head, and it was saying, What the fuck are you still doing here? I don't know when this shift began to happen, away from something we cared about towards something we did out of a desperate hope that if we just kept on, they'd come back, all the prodigals with their children and grandchildren, as if to the promised land. They'd just missed the turnoff. They'd be with us as soon as they realized their error and got turned around. Was it generations ago when we began to wonder if the error was ours, or did it happen only recently? Either way, few worshipping Christians seem to notice it now. Don't doubt, they recall Jesus telling them, only believe. So they put their heads down, they squeeze their eyes shut, they say their prayers, and they believe. I know how and when I got to this place. In my earliest memories, the church was a kind of extended family. We called our priest father, and we called ourselves God's children. That made us all brothers and sisters, though it felt more to me like we were cousins. The kids I went to Sunday school with and my fellow cubs on Tuesday nights, we watched out for each other at school. We'd notice if someone was hurt or being bullied or away sick for a few days. If one part suffers, the whole body suffers. If one part rejoices, the whole body rejoices. As I entered my teens and got randy with the girls and wily with the weed, the church let me go my wicked ways. One Sunday morning, I joined the youth group for a field trip to another church— some friends and I had been smoking some sort of opium-cured pot the previous Friday night, and by Sunday, we were still high. I shared a hymn book with our adult leader at the church we were visiting. My half of the book vibrated like an electric wire, 
and my voice couldn't find a starting note anywhere, he had his eye on me, like God has his eye on the sparrow, but said nothing. He was holding a place for me, for when my wandering days were through. Later in my teens in the new city my family moved to, my new church youth group introduced me to Jesus, personally. They were all on a first-name basis with Jesus, as if he were their buddy. They prayed to him that way, too. Jesus, I just want to thank you. I just want to praise your name. I didn't know why they had to sabotage their own prayers by just wanting to say something, as if it were no more than a suggestion tossed off in the moment to which Jesus could respond or not. But I liked where they were going with it. So I traded drugs for a personal relationship with Jesus and found a curious new high by holding something over my parents whose faith I could now judge, wondering if they were saved as I was. I went on to the only university that would accept me based on my grades. I had had other, more important things to do than study, like fellowshipping with my new friends and evangelizing the world. There I began to learn of a thoughtful, informed, reasonable way of having faith that didn't make me sound stupid up against people a whole lot smarter than I. One could have Jesus in his head, not just in his heart. Who knew? My enthusiasm for having all the answers was soon replaced by learning to ask the right questions and living with the ambiguity that resulted Living one's faith became, for me, a lot more sustainable than feeling it or thinking it. If my relationship with God was going to be real, as real as any human relationship, I needed to accept that sometimes things were going to go awry, wires would get crossed, we weren't always going to see eye to eye, and sometimes we'd get it wrong, and one or the other of us would end up walking away hurt. Such openness brought me to a place where I no longer looked for God within the confines of the church, even after I'd put all my Easter eggs into one basket and got ordained as a priest with a congregation of my own. I loved what we did in church. I loved the privilege of being invited into people's lives, whether to share in the joy of their wedding or in the grief of their passing. Since we were all wounded one way or another— I didn't feel I had to be either answer man or medicine man. I could just be myself, accompanying people I cared about as we all found our way forward together. But I knew God was out there, too. In truth, I was always on the lookout for what God might be doing elsewhere beyond the small net cast by the church. And what I saw, I liked. People may not have used religious language or exhibited faith of any kind, but when they spoke of justice and care for the earth, I felt they were speaking my language. When they spoke of love, especially when it defied convention, it resonated. Whatever the gender of the lovers, love was love, and God was love. So what was the problem? The church didn't see things that way. Some church members did, of course, as did most of my friends, both clergy and lay, but in the official corridors of power, my church denomination fought over the blessing of same-sex relationships. 
our General Synod passed a motion that removed gender from the marriage canon, but by a single vote. Three years later, a vote to ratify that decision was lost by two votes, both from within the House of Bishops. During the debate leading up to that final conclusive vote, Anglicans from across the country rose to the microphones to call for love and for justice. But some rose to call others to task, reminding the assembly that in the Bible, a man who sleeps with a man as with a woman was an abomination, deserving death, the blood remaining upon his own head. When the votes were cast and the motion was lost, some people fell wailing into each other's arms, Others fled the hall in tears, and some sat victorious, smug, and unmoved. The struggle of the Anglican Church of Canada to remove its binary filters and recognize love as love was met by the Canadian public with no reaction at all. No one had been paying attention. Instead, the world must have been wondering why the issue was being debated at all. Everyone else had moved on. Like many, I was crushed by the failure of our national body to move us through this issue to the other side. Had I been a younger priest, with my entire ministry set out before me, I might have packed it in right then and there. A lifetime spent on such a senseless battlefield would have been a bridge too far. But I was at the other end, within a year of retirement, my battles behind me. I loved my work, and I loved my congregation, and I was not keen to truncate my retirement plans by suddenly giving up, taking my Bible, and going home. But I knew this. Once I went, I'd be gone. All of which was foreshadowed as I sat with my clergy colleagues in church services designed to reassure us that in the end, all would be well. The world may change, but God never changes. Take this liturgy. It never changes. Here we are, still addressing God as a man, a very powerful man, who could smite every one of us if he chose, but who instead sent his son to die, smiting him on our behalf, and all of it in elevated language worthy of the great William Shakespeare. See, everything's all right. We're going to be okay. I presided at hundreds of funerals in my almost 40 years as a priest. Some were messy, some were neat, some left the mourners feeling better, some worse. But I can tell you this, having a funeral is better than not having one. Not to have a funeral is to allow unexpressed grief for the dead to infect the systems of the living. Such denial of the profundity of the loss of a loved one holds us back, not to mention whatever it does to the passage on the other side of the loved one. We can't move on until we first go back and bury our dead. Something new is trying to be born among Christians who have left the church. We, I would count myself among them, are trying to find a new way to be faithful in a world that is brimming with God and therefore with possibilities. Not to start a new church, or a new religion, but to recognize and uplift what it means to be human, to do good, and to acknowledge that we are part of some grander scheme than our imaginations could ever dream up. 
An inkling of such new possibilities revealed itself during the great pandemic of 2020. Churches scrambled to keep their truth lines open. For worship, they streamed prayers from empty sanctuaries and preached sermons from the pastor's messy study at home, while church members faithfully kept their distance. And an odd thing happened. People liked worshiping that way. In their PJs, with a coffee at hand, ambling off to take a pee break whenever nature called, Bible studies and meditation groups met during the week as Zoom conferences, everyone getting their say or their meditative sit, as the case may have been. No one had to venture out in their cars to find parking or on public transit with its hit-and-miss arrivals. But new possibilities will not open for those who cling to the corpse of traditional Christianity. Remove the stone and, like Lazarus, it stinketh. So let's give the church the decent burial it deserves, with grandiose hymns and unsmiling ushers and pompous processions, maybe even an unctuous passing of the peace. And then, let's move on. God is already on the other side of the church doors, out in the world, waiting for us there. It's been a long wait. So, there it is, our first episode. Thanks for joining me. In the next episode, I'll begin reading to you from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Then, I'll begin talking with folks who are just a little ahead of us on the journey, people whose soulful paths extend beyond whatever formal religious affiliation they might once have had. They will be our guides to the rich spiritual terrain on the other side of conventional religion. I hope my memoir engages you. It's not your story. But if I've done my job, parts of it will be familiar to you, and you'll find yourself not so much following my story as paying new attention to your own. That's why we tell stories, and that's why we listen. If my story does awaken yours, I'd love to hear about it. You can post a message on the Facebook group The Mystic Cave. You can also write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and sign up on my website to receive my blog, which serves as a backgrounder to the podcast, each one containing a link to the latest episode. Thanks for finding me, and thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. But I still